Now let's uh, turn to our second reading of Scripture and also to our text. And uh, we'll find it in the prophecy of Hosea. The prophecy of Hosea and chapter 5. And uh, you'll find the prophecy of Hosea just after the book of Daniel, which is after the lengthy prophecy of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel and then Daniel and then Hosea. And uh, reading in chapter 5, and uh, reading at verse 10, and we'll read through into a part of chapter 6. So let's give attention to the word of God. Hosea chapter 5 at verse 10. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by a human precept. Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, Then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb. Yet he cannot cure you, nor heal you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away, and no one shall rescue I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offence. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction they will earnestly seek me. Come and let us return to the Lord. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. And especially uh, verse 1 of chapter 6. But of course, in the light of the context, and we'll see that as we go on. Come and let us return to the Lord. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. So come and let us return to the Lord. Come and let us return to the Lord. Now, I want to look with you in some detail at this text, which is, I think we could say one of the great texts of the Bible and certainly one of its great calls to repentance. Uh, To repent means, of course, to turn. It is the Hebrew word turn. So this is a call for turning, turning to God, or if you like, turning back to God. Because the story of the human race is one of falling away from God. So we are called here to turn back. Now, Hosea 
preached in the 8th century BC, which was the last century of Israel, the northern kingdom, before her dispersion. And Hosea had a long ministry. It spanned the reign of many kings. And he from God for approximately 60 years or so. And uh, he belonged to the northern kingdom of Israel. And most of what he said was addressed to his own country, Israel in the north. Sometimes you'll notice that Israel is called Ephraim. And that's just because the leading tribe in the north was the tribe of Ephraim. So whenever you read Ephraim, it is essentially Israel. But some of his prophecies, uh, just very few, are addressed to the kingdom of Judah in the south as well. Now here in chapter 5 and in verse 8, he is blowing uh, the trumpet. Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, cry aloud at Bethaven, look behind you, O Benjamin. He is addressing there areas in the border between Israel and Judah. And it's obvious that he's addressing the two kingdoms. He's standing, as it were, on the boundary and addressing both. And the reason that he addresses both is because both are falling away from God, or if you like, turning back from God in uh, every walk of life. And uh, that's why the prophecy is so urgent. Now, in the passage that we read, and in our text, there are four great themes. And if we take them together, I think we could say that they sum up a lot of our Christian experience. And so it's vital to understand them all. And the four themes are these. First of all, there is our sin. Our sin. The second theme is God's chastisement in light of our sin. The third theme is our repentance. And the last is God's healing. Our sin, God's chastisement. Our repentance and God's healing. Now I have to acknowledge that um, themes particularly of sin and repentance, I suppose have been uh, quite prominent in what I've had to say recently. But the reason for that is very obvious. It's because the hour simply demands it. I mean, Luther once famously said that if we preach on anything except the issues of the day, then we are not really proclaiming the gospel, certainly not relevantly at all. And uh, we've been in national lockdown from the effects of a pestilence now for a long time. And it would be a poor thing if we didn't receive that providence as a call from God to try our ways, to search ourselves and to try our ways and to turn again to the Lord. So I make no apology for thinking of our sin and God's chastisement, our repentance and God's healing. But these four themes are big themes and I would like to do them justice and I would like to break what I want to say into four parts and to span it essentially over four sermons. This morning, I want us to look at our sin. And tonight, we'll look at God's chastisement. And next Sabbath morning, God willing, we'll look at our repentance 
and next Sabbath evening, God's healing. And although these four things are spread throughout our passage, they are either implicitly or explicitly in the words of our text. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. As I say, the four themes of sin, chastisement, repentance and healing are all either implicit or explicit in the text. Well then, let's begin with God's help this morning by looking at our sin. And that is implicit in the text. Come and let us return to the Lord. Clearly, we have turned away. We have turned away. Or as it's sometimes spoken of in the Bible, we have backslidden. The Hebrew word there is simply turning away. Repentance is turning back. So to backslide is turning away from God. Repentance is turning back. Now, turning away from God is a very dangerous condition to be in. Um, If we don't repent of that, and if we continue to turn away, we will certainly perish. And that will reveal that, that we were never truly born again. It's the state of final apostasy. And uh, if we perish in that state, there is no restoration possible from it. As the tree falls, so it will lie. Of course, um, if we are God's children, then we will repent. We will turn, we will turn back. And of course, we will experience the healing and the restoration of God. But you see, if you're in the act turning back, if you're in the act of falling away, or if you like, if you're in the process of turning back or in the process of falling away, beware of having a false assurance as to where you actually stand in relationship with God. If if you're, you're falling away or you're going back is not troubling you, then you ought to be troubled that your path might be one of apostasy and your destination final apostasy and God's final judgment. Um, And you can recognize a false assurance by the fact that it simply comforts you without convicting you. It comforts you without convicting you. It doesn't move you to restoration. Whereas um, a, a real assurance would. A real assurance always moves you closer to God. It makes you want to please God. It makes you want to be holy as God is holy. So beware of false assurance when you're in the process of falling away from God. So having said that, I want us just to notice um, that both Judah and Israel are turning away from God. Again, it's worth noting before we look at them both separately, they're, they're not falling away at the same rate. And they're not falling away to the same degree. And the way that God deals with them reflects that. I mean, God is careful as to how he deals with different nations, with different families, with different souls. He he deals with us all exactly as we are. And his dealings with Israel and Judah reflect that. But it's interesting that Israel is leading the way into this falling away into the apostasy, and Judah is foolishly following 
Israel's example. That's always how it is. It's like that with countries. One leads another. It's like that with governments. One leads another. Like churches, one church leads another. It's like that with individuals too. Uh, one will lead another. Some lead, others follow. And the prophets often warned Judah not to follow Israel's example. And that warning was especially needful when Israel began to prosper economically. Now, it's a strange thing that sometimes God will allow prosperity in a nation. Um, perhaps if adversity does not turn us to the Lord, he sends prosperity to see if it will bring thankfulness or gratitude. And in the days of Jeroboam II in Israel, who had a very long reign, Israel became prosperous. And there was a warning to Judah that she wouldn't uh, follow her example to get prosperity. For example, Hosea himself says, chapter 4 and verse 15, Though Israel play the harlot, let not Judah offend. So don't look up north to get your inspiration up north. Even if Israel does play the harlot, don't you offend. But of course they did. And in chapter 5 and verse 15, Hosea tells us that Israel stumbles in her iniquity and Judah stumbles with her. And uh, according to Jeremiah, Judah actually ended up becoming worse. In Jeremiah 3, 6, let me just read this to you. God says, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? Yet her treacherous sister Judah saw it and did not fear, but played the harlot also. And therefore God says that backsliding Israel is more righteous than treacherous Judah. Backsliding Israel is more righteous than treacherous Judah. Now the surprise there was that Judah looked on, and instead of taking warning from what Israel had done in her relationship with God, and how she played fast and loose with God's commandments, she decided to follow their path, even conforming their worship to Israelite worship, which had itself conformed to Syrian, sometimes Egyptian worship. Now, you, you often see that in the lives of individuals. You see it in the lives of churches, too. They, they follow each other into worldliness and into false worship. Instead of being warned by the path that they take, they seemed concerned to follow them. Obviously, friends, the texts are telling us there, the texts that we've referred to are telling us to, on the one hand, beware of setting a bad example with your backsliding. And, and remember that your backsliding will never be confined to yourself. As the poet John Donne said famously, no man is an island. And in the spiritual world, no man is an island. Your backsliding will not just be your own problem. It will become somebody else's. So beware setting a bad example with your backsliding. And of course, at the same time, beware of following a bad example. Jehoshaphat was a godly king in the south, a godly king in Judah. But he was dragged down by forming these foolish alliances with Israel. He constantly kept doing it, and he dragged himself down and dragged others with him too. So beware of that. 
Now, I want to look first with you at Israel's sin and then Judah's. And when we're doing that, of course, this isn't a study of history for history's sake. It's not a study of two ancient kingdoms in their rise and in their fall and future restoration. This is a look at what God is saying to ourselves through these people. He's speaking to us in the Bible. These things, as Paul says, were written for our benefit on whom the end of the ages have come. So Israel's Israel's sin first. Now, throughout Hosea's prophecy, and uh, he does prophesy for a long time to just about the time when Israel is finally taken captive by the Assyrians. And of course, you'll remember that Israel as a kingdom was exploded by that captivity and uh, were not reconstituted like Judah was. Now, the prophet mentions several sins in Israel. He says that amongst the people in the kingdom, there was now no truth or mercy to be found. So both righteousness and genuine mercy were absent. And there was no knowledge of God to be found. Instead, there was killing, stealing, and adultery. Hosea 4 and uh, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing, stealing, and committing adultery, they break all restraint. Now keep that in mind just now. I'm going to come back to this idea of restraint. They break restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore, the land will mourn. The land will mourn. Or as he says later in the prophecy, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, this is a day of information, but when it comes to real knowledge of who we are as a country, there is just ignorance. Um, Israel here had lost her history. As her true prophets disappeared, they really began to forget who they were. They had conformed themselves so much to others that they forgot their own identity. Now, when societies change, they begin to change the story of their life and existence, especially if they're trying to de-Christianize their own civilization or the history of their own land. New histories are told. Revisionist histories are written. That happened in the Soviet Union, famously. It happened in places like Cambodia, where there was an attempt to begin again at year zero. And the history of the nation was obliterated and a new narrative was created. Now, um, came to my attention recently that uh, George Orwell wrote of that in his famous book, 1984. Uh, Every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book rewritten, every picture repainted, every statue and every street renamed. And the process continues day by day and minute by minute. Nothing exists but an endless present in which the party, that's the ruling party, is always right. Now that's what happens uh, when there is a lack of knowledge, a lack of knowledge of the real truth. And the result is that the people are destroyed. 
So, friends, the most important thing that you can know in connection with our own identity as a people is who we are. Who are we in relation to history? Who are we in relation to the Bible? The single most important fact about our nation of Scotland is possibly a fact that you don't even know. That our nation, from top to bottom, from nobility to commoner, sworn itself, swore itself into a covenant relationship with God. That was the most significant event in Scottish history, and it took place in the 17th century. We swore ourselves into a relationship with God. And yet, it's a fact that will not be taught to most children in school. And therefore, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We are in breach of covenant all the time, in breach of serious covenant to which we obliged ourselves. That's why we're being destroyed. But in our text here, in, in verse 11, there's a particular sin highlighted. Now, this is chapter 5, verse 11. Now, remember, this is in the context of returning to the Lord. It's in the context of the sin that has made us turn away from the Lord. So here in verse 11, there's a focus on Israel or Ephraim. It says, Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by a human precept. Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth. So Ephraim willingly walked by a human precept. Now, the word human there, if you're using the New King James Version, is in italics. In other words, the original says simply, he willingly walked by precept. <clears throat> now, they've inserted human, and I think it's right to do so, basically. It's certainly not a divine precept by which they were walking. If, if they were, they wouldn't be oppressed and broken in judgment. They wouldn't be facing the chastisement of God. So it is a human precept or the commandments of men. And the, the commandments that they followed have been the commandments of their kings and their leaders. And Israel's course was very much set by her first king, Jeroboam. You'll remember that he was anxious to keep the loyalty of the ten northern tribes. And he recognized that the way to achieve that was to set up a rival worship. And uh, he set up two centers of worship, and he chose a new priesthood, and he chose a new way of worship. They would have visible representations of God instead of a, an invisible God, and they would use rites and rituals in worship that God had not commanded. But the problem here, you see, is that the whole of Ephraim willingly walked by this precept. In other words, they accepted it. Now, acceptance of these things can be in degrees, you see, but because to a degree, a good number of them were not willing to go down that road. In fact, from the beginning, some didn't accept it. Um, they would go down to Jerusalem to worship God in the way that God had appointed. Right from the beginning, although they stayed living in Israel, three times a year they would make the journey down to Jerusalem to worship God as God had appointed that to be done. So they were not... Those people anyway weren't in approval of it. But the fact is that the bulk went along with it. And gradually, you see, in this covenanted nation of Israel, as the worship was corrupted, 
society began to break. That's when the killing came in. That's when the stealing came in. That's when the adultery came in. That's when truth began to fall in the street. Honesty and integrity and purity of life and family life. These things began to break in Israel when the worship began to break. That reminds us in a covenanted nation, in a covenanted nation, the rot will always begin in the church. Always begins in the church. And the healing will begin in the church too. He will begin that cleansing in the sanctuary. But the problem is that when the church itself becomes corrupt, there's no salt on the earth. There's no light in the world. And that just that rottenness and corruption accelerates. You are the salt of the earth, the Lord said. You are the light of the world. And what happens without salt? What happens to the land without it? What happens to the land without light? So that's why the church must see her sins, and especially in worship. That's where it has to begin, especially in worship. But the result of this, if you go back to verse 11 there in chapter 5, because Ephraim willingly walks by human precepts, Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment. Now, the judgment here is not God's judgment. It's human judgment. It's the judgments of the princes, of the rulers, of the kings and the governments. Ephraim is oppressed and broken by these. The people who enforced these new human commandments, the new legislation, the new conduct, the new way of life and the new morality, the new religion, the new belief system, turned out to be oppressors and broke them in judgment. The government, the judiciary, the church broke the people. Now, who would have thought that? I mean, if you go back to Israel's foundation when she became a separate country first, you'll, you remember how that happened. She broke off from Judah because of high taxation and heavy government. And it was a popular revolt against the House of David. It was a popular movement, but the people ended up more enslaved than the people of Judah. And the tragedy is that they were a party to themselves. They let it happen. They let it happen. Friends, nations are very seldom led against that will. When a, what happens really is that when a people reject God, what happens is that they, they become very pliable. And they become very pliable, especially under a strong leader. And there was just no will in Israel to resist these changes. No will. The fact that they were turning their backs on God themselves individually meant that when they came under a tyranny, they couldn't resist it. They, they lost God. And following man destroyed them. As Jeremiah said, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? And we see that in our, covenanted, our own covenanted nation. If we stayed on the book, friends, if we stayed by the law of God, if we followed its commandments and accepted the guidance of God, we wouldn't be all at sea as we are just now. It is very evident that those who rule over us have no wisdom. 
It's wisdom that they lack. They have a certain amount of knowledge. They have a limited amount of understanding, but no wisdom whatsoever. Because wisdom arises from knowing what one ought to do in the light of God's word. Human wisdom is nothing. God makes it foolish and exposes its foolishness. They have rejected the word of the Lord, so what wisdom do they have? Is that true of yourself individually? You too have rejected the word of the Lord. You've turned back from the word of the Lord. You were baptized into it. You were raised into it. Very well, you've turned back from it. But what wisdom do you have? What understanding do you now have of the world? What understanding do you have of yourself? What understanding do you have of others? What view do you have of history? What prospect do you see for the future? Do you know? Or are you speculating and surmising? If we reject the word of the Lord and its comprehensive worldview of everything, what wisdom do we have? So is Ephraim sadly was broken, broken and oppressed because he willingly walked by human precepts. We saw that last week, actually. I'm, I'm sure it was last Sabbath day. Um, yes, it was. It was in connection with those who, were, who had found the life of their hand, you see, in pursuit of uh, covetousness and vain things. Al although they felt broken by it, they felt let down by it, there was no other way to go, you see. There was no other way to go. It reminds me of the um, of the, the the speaker on the radio once who who was once asked about uh, the creation evolution debate or did um, was matter always existent or did did it come into being from nothing and so on and he said well <clears throat> the real reason the fundamental reason we accept the evolutionary worldview is because he said there is no alternative <laughs> but of course there is an alternative. There is an alternative. There always has been an alternative. And uh, you see here, that's the sad thing, that you've rejected God, but what exactly have you embraced? What have you embraced? Uh, oh, Israel, you have destroyed yourself. You have destroyed yourself, but your help is in me. Uh, can, can you identify with that at all? When God says to you today, you who have turned back, when he says to you, you have destroyed yourself, can you say, yes, you know, that, that's what I have done. Uh, I'm so reluctant to try anything else in life because I still think that my, my pursuits and my way of life will give me satisfaction. But deep down, I do feel, yes, I, I, I've destroyed myself and I'm destroying myself. But your help is in me, God says. Your help is in me. Now, if anything, we see this, this process more clearly in connection with Judah in verse 10. So we saw Ephraim there. Judah summed up in verse 10. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. Now, it's the princes that are highlighted here. The civil authorities or the government. Now, that may incline you to say, oh, well, this doesn't have much to do with me then. It's just got to do with people who are in authority. Well, not so. Uh, bear with me. I'll come back to that. But 
uh, not so because like people like priest uh, as we'll see in a moment so the sins of the princes of judah here they are like those who remove a landmark now a landmark in the old testament is what we would call today a boundary marker a kind of fence to preserve property to mark out uh, inheritance and israel were to be very careful to respect boundary markers at all times proverbs 22:28 don't remove the ancient landmarks which your fathers have set deuteronomy 19:14 you shall not remove your neighbor's landmark in your inheritance which you will inherit in the land that the lord your god is giving you Deuteronomy 27:17 Cursed is he who removes his neighbor's landmark. Now it's possible that uh, such a thing was happening quite literally in Judah that people were extending field to field in their covetousness uh, taking the land off the poor and uh, taking it to themselves as the rich and using exploitation in the process. Um, we have a famous example, although, although the most famous example is actually in the northern kingdom of Israel, when Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. Now, Naboth was uh, very possessive for good reasons of the vineyard. It had been in the family, it had been passed down from generation to generation. But of course, Ahab and especially his wife would not accept that, and they effectively seized Naboth's vineyard, as people in power can often do when too much power is given to the state the state begins to bloat and to take that power to itself but this um removing of landmarks is not literal here uh, you'll notice that what the text says is that the princes of judah are like those who remove a landmark in other words it's not so much the actual moving of the landmark that's a problem although it could have been there but what they're doing is equivalent to that. In other words, they are behaving morally and spiritually as people who remove landmarks. Now, to do that is a very profound thing and a great evil. There's, there's two related ideas here. First of all, by removing a landmark, they are encroaching as governments and rulers where they should not they're encroaching into the dominion of an individual, the dominion of the family, and the dominion of the church. These are spheres of government which God has appointed. And the state should recognize the God-given rights of the individual, not as the individual wants to define them, but as God defines them. And especially the state should recognize the sovereignty of the family, as a distinct governmental unit which is governed and they should recognize their own sphere as the state. But what's happened here is that the princes of Judah are removing these landmarks and they're invading the territory with their own legislation. That's what we've seen in our own covenanted land. Governments have got bigger and bigger and bolder and bolder and increasingly evil. Over the last 50, 60 years, there's been a raft of evil legislation 
and it's invaded ever more into the individual's life, into the life and domain of the family, where a parent is not even allowed to physically justize his child. By whose authority? By whose authority? And, of course, into the life of the church. And uh, we need to be careful in this lockdown, too. Uh, we haven't closed our worshipping assemblies because we've been told to. We've closed them because we are aware that it's wise and good to do so. Uh, the command of God to his people to assemble as his kingdom every Sabbath day can't be cancelled by the state. So there's an ever-increasing encroachment on the right of others. And as well as that, removing the landmark and the ancient landmark means that they are disrespecting what has been settled for a long time by men of God. Statutes which were established to secure godliness and freedom in the land. Now, that kind of spirit when governments enacted is the spirit of Babylon, not of Jerusalem. It's the spirit of the Antichrist, not the spirit of the Christ. In Second Thessalonians 2, 3, we're told of a great falling away when the anti-Christian system exalts himself and itself above God. Daniel says that these anti-Christian figures will change times and laws and will persecute God's people. Persecute God's people. And um, incompetent governments can allow the removal of ancient boundaries too. If a tyranny doesn't impose the removal of the boundaries, weak governments will allow it. They'll allow it. Uh, Judah, Judah's government, we, we read a passage there in Isaiah, I'm just going to refer to it again, where her government becomes weak. I will give children to be their princes. Now notice this is, <clears throat> we're, do, we're electing these people, we're electing these children, but, but God's giving them to us. This is, this is going back to what I said a minute ago. You can't divorce what the government does and who the government are from who you are. I will give children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them. The child will be insolent towards the elder. That includes the child who's just come into government. He'll be insolent, removing the landmarks and the base towards the honourable. Jerusalem stumbled, verse 8, and Judah has fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. The look on their countenance witnesses against them. So they've got an expression on their face. Have you seen this recently? Have you seen it on the streets? An expression on their face witnesses against them. And they declare their sin as Sodom did. Now, Sodom wasn't ashamed of its immoral lifestyle, which was characterized not just by fullness of bread and luxury, but preeminently by sexual decadence. But they weren't ashamed of that sec sexual decadence. They declared it, and so do these people here. Shocking to think that this is in Judah. They do not hide it. Woe to their souls because they have brought evil upon themselves. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. 
which says actually just as much about the men as it does about the women. Children are their oppressors and women rule over them. O my people, those who are leading you are making you to err and destroying the way of your paths. Children rule over them. Were any of you as amazed, as stupefied as I was watching a group of grown, mature men and women in the United Nations being lectured by a 15-year-old girl about the state of the world and the state of the environment, as though everything she said was from the mouth of a prophetess? Astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. But these things are all spoken of in Scripture. Is it the sin of the rulers? The sin of the people too? Why? Because rulers reflect the people. You can't get away from that. The rulers reflect the people. We're given rulers according to what we're like. That happens in the church too. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule by their means. And my people love to have it so, God says. Listen to that again. Listen to it again. The prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests rule by their means. The prophets keep the priests in their place and in their pay. And my people love to have it so. Ultimately, they're to blame. Because they like it that way. They like it. It's comfortable. The same was true in the nation. When Israel chose her first king, they chose a handsome and accomplished soldier. Not a man of God, but a handsome and accomplished soldier. And it was God's people who chose him. How foolish we can sometimes be in our behavior. How easily we're led away from godliness as the measure of all things. How easily we judge like the world judges. God said to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, he says. They're rejecting me. And... Um, Hosea himself, this prophet that we're looking at, actually later on in chapter 13, he looks back at that. Or God looks back at it, at the election of Saul. And God says this, I gave you a king in my anger. They celebrated that day as though, as though God was guiding them in the choice of a king. No, God says, I gave you a king in my anger. And I took him away in my wrath. It all reflects ourselves. The state of this nation and the state of this church has something to do with me and it has something to do with us. To do with us. Too many of us must somehow love to have it so. We, we must love to have it so. You think, well, in what way? Well, let me ask you some very basic questions. Have you voted for any of these people to be your rulers? Did you vote Conservative? Did you vote SNP? Did you put power into the hands of pro-abortionists? Did you put power into the hands of those who are destroying Christian knowledge? Have you put power into the hands of those who will most likely tear down the statues of John Knox one day, take away the martyr's gravestone or deface it, take the literature away from what's written on it there in Greyfriars Churchyard? Did you vote for them? Did you vote for them for economic reasons? Someone once said, if governments 
will provide sexual freedom and plenty money, they will be guaranteed to get your vote. If governments can provide sexual freedom and plenty money, they can be guaranteed to get your vote. Were you a party to that? How much do you value our landmarks and our boundaries? And how much do I? People are taking down statues for complex reasons. It's not straightforward at all. It's not just a matter of racism. No civilization. There's no civilization that hasn't been built on the back of racism or slavery. None. But there's a very targeted, very targeted group for destruction. The, the desire is to efface essentially Christianity itself under the guise of defacing what's connected to it. But what do we value? How important are our own symbols and our own statues? It amazes me still that the tomb of John Knox lies underneath a car park space outside the Faculty Library of Advocates, the Faculty of Advocates. Um, why is that? Will we come to the streets to defend our statues? It seems that people are quite keen to have their own symbols and street names and statues. Are we jealous for our own? Even if you don't go on the streets to protect your own, are you still jealous for them? Do we care? Do our memorials matter? What do we think of Drumclog or Rullian Green? What do we think of Bothwell Brig? What do we think of these things? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And last of all, and I'll just leave you with this for now, what about our own resolves to repentance? In verse 4 of chapter 6, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud. To how many of us does that refer? Is that applicable to more of us than we realize? Um, maybe we hear some of these things and we think about some of these things and, and we resolve to do something. We resolve on more zeal. When I preached preach recently on going into the secret place. How many of you resolved on greater diligence in the holy place, in the secret place? But yet God says that that faithfulness was like a morning cloud. Why? Well, because it appeared in the morning and it was imposing in the morning. It dominated the skyline in the morning, but by lunchtime it had dissipated and gone. Is that your repentance? Is that mine? Is it a kind of half-hearted resolution? that it doesn't even make it through the day without weakening. And God says, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? Um, our sins, friends, are the things that come in between us and God. Our sins are the reason that we need to return. Our sins are the, the reason that our covenanted nation is lying in such a low state of affairs. Our sins, our sins. 
Tonight we'll consider how God chastises them and we'll see just the relationship between that and where we are today. May the Lord bless our meditation on his word.